Is anything too hard for the Lord? He says that a couple of times, that there's this lesson that Abraham needs to learn. You know, he needs to learn the answer to that question if he's going to be the father of a multitude. And this multitude, this multitude is related. You know, we are related to Abraham because we know the answer to that question as well. And, and that, I think, is the Abrahamic faith. It's not, you know, it's not just believing in this invisible guy in the sky. It's not just monotheism. I think that it is the answer to the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Mm-hmm. And to live with that confidence um, is important. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where hey. we're seeking to recover faith by recovering the faith. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, I like it. Yeah, that sounds. I'm Kent. This is Nathan. Okay. We're in a series called "According to Scripture." Yeah. And today we're going to be talking about how Abraham went from Abram to Abraham, (laughs) and what that means for the faith. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I guess people who are maybe not that astute in the Bible, I don't know how. I don't know how educated in the Bible you had to be to know that Abram's name, his given name, or it wasn't Abraham. You know, we talk about, <clears throat> there's a lot of uh, talk, especially uh, I notice among, say, skeptics of the Abrahamic theists, Abrahamic theism. So it's just a way of putting Muslims, Christians, and Jews together. And I guess that's fair. You know, I guess people all claim Abraham. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, we, we've heard the name Abraham, but maybe not everybody knows that he didn't begin as Abraham. He began as Abram. So um, that's where we're going to go. Why did why did he transition from Abram to Abraham? Maybe that's not been a burning question in your mind. Mm. Maybe you've been like... Oh, but it is now. We just planted the seed. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, now you're like, wait, why? Should we start with our highlights? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. First, after... Abram had wandered in Palestine for 24 years, God appeared to him to change his name and reveal that his promise would be fulfilled through a son born by God's power, who Abram must name Isaac. Mm-mm. God's relationship with Abraham uh, closely mirrors the ancient system of patronage, where a powerful patron offers a um, offers aid called grace to a weak and vulnerable client who is expected to offer their loyalty or faith in return. The covenant God made with Abraham also included his offspring. This covenant could not be amended or revoked, but was provisionally supplemented. That's the law, right? Yeah. Until the coming of the capital O offspring to whom God's promises were made. Right, all right. Christ is the supernaturally born offspring to whom the promise referred. As Abraham's seed, he has become the vehicle to reproduce Abrahamic faith in everyone who believes the gospel. So he has become the father of many nations. Lastly, because the seed of Abraham is the son of God, those who are children of Abraham by faith have also become adopted as children of God. In Christ, Abram, exalted father, became Abraham, father of a multitude. And so did God. What? What? God went from exalted father to father of a multitude. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's kind of where we're going today. It is. Yeah, that's where we're headed. Yep. So are we going back to the beginning? Abraham is a yeah, yeah, you know, wandering Arabian. <clears throat> He's called out. So, you know, last time we talked about in Genesis 12 how he was called out yeah. from his place and his right. people. Our previous episode was called previous episode. out. God, yeah. The gospel calls us out of corrupt society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we get up to, like, Genesis 15. Um, Abram has been in the land for, what, 10 years now. And uh, the word of Yahweh comes to him. And uh, scripture speaks of various manifestations of God as a, you know, I wouldn't say anthropomorphized, but I would say um, personalized, you know, that that there's this 
entity, this being, you know. So the word of the Lord, we're told, came to Abram. It's not like Abram heard the word, but the word came and said. Mm-hmm. The and word so, approached him. Yeah. Yeah, so this there's this manifestation of God that is spoken of as his word, and the word comes to Abram and speaks to him, kind of reiterates this promise after 10 years, you know. So if you haven't heard from God in a while, maybe it's just because he's on a timeline. Like, you know, what do you mean? <laughs> just, you know, for him, decades are like, you know, seconds. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've been talking like every second uh, <laughs> from our perspective, not as much, you know. So, yeah, the word of the Lord came to him, took him outside, showed him all the stars in the sky, and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So God credited Abram's belief Mm-hmm. as righteousness yeah yeah uh so he uh goes out there and he and he shows them all all that and god is offering this this or abram is responding to god's promise with this faith mm-hmm. right and so we get this idea of of the promise and faith in the promise mm-hmm. and this is patronage right yeah so that was one of our highlights on this idea of patronage, uh, I think we'll get more into it. But yeah, that there's this, that God has initiated a relationship. And, and um, we, I, we've done away with a lot of this, this idea of a hierarchy or a stratified society. But everybody before this time, at least in all civilized history, you know, has lived in a, in a social environment where you've had um, a, a ladder, you know, where people at, there are people at the top and there are people at the bottom. Um, there's say there's nobility at the top and, uh, the slaves are at the bottom, you know, of this hierarchy. Um, actually this is an aside, I guess, but in the, in the communist manifesto of Marx, he comments that this is, that the, the world has changed with the coming of the industrial revolution that we went from a social hierarchy consisting of several levels to a bifurcated society, which is two, with the Owners. those who have and those who don't have, or the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and that really precipitated everything. You know, that came in the twentieth century. This idea that the um, that if you have a, a ladder, um, then you can perhaps move up one degree but if there's this vast gulf between those who own capital and those who only can provide their labor then the you know those people who own the capital will always be on top and the people who uh, provide only their labor will always be on the bottom and so that was that was his concern I think that was at the heart of all of that stuff that happened um but all that to say, uh, you know, in our day and time, we at least believe that there's not a difference. I mean, we would, we would obviously pay, you know, respect to say if the president came to our house or whatever. But, um, you know, he's still human like us and puts his pants on, you know, one leg at a time, presumably, and all that. So we don't, we don't see him as a higher order of, of being. Um, and and yet here's God; he's at the very top. So in in a world like that and you know, an ancient world, God, you know, to go into, um, say, presume upon him, that, that might just be a, you know, such a, um, outrageous thing to do, an insulting thing to do that you would, you would be hazarding your own life. Uh, if say he was a, a very high ranking noble, you know, just to come barging in where mm-hmm. he is would mm-hmm. be an odd thing. And so in, in the ancient Near East and in, you know, this world for someone like God to um, engage, for, for there to be a relationship across this divide, that it has to be initiated from above. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're the if you're the lowly one, right? You're you're and and you're kind of looking up. You you can't ascend, but that person 
can descend. Mm-hmm. Well, they have no reason to do that. You know, you're going to have to do, you're going to have to serve him or whatever out of fear. Um, and but so in this case, no reason. the word of the Lord came to Abram. So this right. is the, 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 the noble approaching the lowly. Right. Yeah. And so this, this is referred to as grace because it's motivated from within, from an intrinsic generosity and nobility within the person who is higher because he has nothing to gain from the lower individual. Uh, because he can just demand it or whatever. He can exploit that person if he wants. Um, that the person at the top possesses all of the resources and the person at the bottom is utterly dependent on the one who possesses all the resources. So to initiate this contact is an act of, of grace. Okay, It's because of, of the character of the, of the higher one. So, um, and in... In that circumstance, the only right response is this loyalty that is pistis, right? This faithfulness. But, uh, but yeah, there is this, you know, I can't give, we can't give to this entity really anything he doesn't already have, you know. But what we can do is, you know, respond in this kind of ab- abject trust and gratitude offer ourselves to be available and to um, believe what this person is saying and doing. So, yeah. Abraham. So it's grace that God approached Abraham and initiated, mm-hmm. made an offer, and it's and then the offer itself is gracious. It's a promise to yeah. give, mm-hmm. to do yeah. something for Abraham that Abraham can't do. Right. Yeah. And so Abraham... Abram can't earn it, you know, he can't really respond in kind. The only thing he can do, the only just response to this kind of generosity is to believe. Believe. And so God counted it as righteousness. Mm -hmm. God's going to count that faith as a righteous life, as a righteous, as righteous deeds. Yeah. Um, And your point being that there was nothing Abraham really could do Mm -hmm. anyway. But believe. Right. I mean, he could disbelieve, I guess, you know. Uh, the only positive uh, response. Right. And and you can we can see that he struggles. You know, even the next verse, he's like, you know, how, how are you going to give anything to me? You know, I uh, I don't have any children. And the slave in my house is going to inherit everything. Uh-huh. You know, a, uh, Eleazar of Damascus is going to inherit everything in his house, his, his uh, steward or wherever he was. And so, you know, even though Abram believed God, he, he's still got some questions, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and he, he voices those, and, and maybe that's good. That helps us, you know, to realize that um, there's room, that God's big enough for us to ask him our questions uh-huh. and to be to struggle, you know. And isn't God laying the groundwork for the kind of faith that's going to be required here? Because yeah. the setup, the God's got it set up to where... The thing that God promises is the thing that Abraham has no ability to fulfill, which is produce a, an heir, yeah. since he has failed to do so to this point, and now he's old, and his wife is right. old. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we get to this idea of the, of the name change, right? Um, somewhere a little bit later in the story um, that there's... You mean the read that right important. there? Genesis yeah. 17? Go for it. Um, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, father of a multitude. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Yeah. I'll read the next one. We got a lot of Bible this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother 
of nations, kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed to himself. Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael may live under your blessing. And then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So God does something here. Uh, there's several things, and this is kind of a foundational passage, really, this Genesis 17. It's the giving of circumcision, which um, becomes later later to be an, an issue, I guess, a point of contention as Paul is preaching the gospel into the Gentile world. And the Jews are like, hey, we're all four Gentiles worshiping our God. They just need to become Jews. But then Paul's like, but if they become Jews, then it won't be Gentiles worshiping your God. Right. right. So it all, you know, it, that defeats it, it the purpose. Becomes, yeah, it becomes convoluted there. And uh, um, and so in this very passage where God is is giving the covenant of circumcision to the, the Jewish nation, Paul uses uh, this verse to say that Abrahamic, the Abraham's people are not just those who are circumcised. Right. Because God has been working with Abraham. God has proclaimed Abraham righteous before this moment. Right, Genesis mm-hmm. 15, yep. he yep. calls him righteous. On account of his faith. Right. In Genesis 17, he gives him circumcision. So, And Paul promises, his again, that his, he reiterates the promise that his descendants will be multitudes. Right, right. And, but then he says, um, and... and this is pivotal, uh, and he brings it up in Romans 4, but he says, I have made you mm. the father of many nations. Um, this is largely, uh, and we talk in Christian circles about predestination, in my view, and what I think is um, the case, Paul's discussions on predestination have a lot more to do with this pastoral concern that the Gentiles be included in Israel than it does with uh, what's called soteriology, the mechanics of how God saves an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in, in, a, in the Reformation with Luther and um, Calvin, the concern was more, how does God save an individual? That was Luther's, you know, as Luther had mm-hmm. this awareness that, that upon belief and, and, and faith that God is counting us righteous, and so this Genesis 15 phenomenon. And that was a big deal. Um, and, and yet as they're working out the, the individual mechanics of salvation, you know, they're, they're realizing, Hey, this isn't something that we have to earn. Uh, how does it all work? Right. Mm -hmm. And if it's unconditional, you know, where, when is this decided? Mm -hmm. Um, so Calvin and, and really basing a lot of it off of Augustine, the fifth century, um, Christian writer, thinker, theologian, um, you know, is is formulating this this systematic theology that has to do with God arbitrarily selecting a list of who's people in, who's who's to be saved and those who are going to be damned, and and that it can't be that that list cannot be altered in any way. Um, that kind of systematized approach, I, I think Paul would have would have just scratched his head. You know, even though uh, Calvin is is reading Paul, uh, Paul doesn't seem to have develop this kind of idea, you know, the systematized theology, he's making the case that the Gentiles have always been a part of the plan. Mm -hmm. And to do that, he says, I have made you the father of many nations. So it seems that Paul gets his concept of predestination, not from some separate revelation, you know, we, we kind of have a record of how many direct revelations Paul had, mm-hmm. right? Jesus appears to him on the road. He somehow pulled into the third heaven. We don't know what all was expounded to him there. Um, we have him, you know, Jesus shows up. He gets a lot of no's as he's trying to go into different areas from the spirit. He's on a boat. And Jesus says, hey, you're, you know, everybody's going to be okay, but you're going to lose the ship. You know, mm-hmm. and and you know these are these are basically the sum total of all the direct revelation uh, or encounters that Paul seems to have had. Um, as Paul has, he tends to share autobiographical information. Luke, as somewhat of his biographer, shares this. So we have 
somewhat of a complete account of the direct revelation that Paul got. When Paul is writing in his letters, <clears throat> we have to keep in mind that Paul isn't receiving special revelation to tell the churches what to do. Mm-hmm. He's expounding the Bible. He's expounding the gospel and the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. he's using what he thinks he knows. He's speaking to people who don't have access to the scriptures. He's speaking to somebody who has the benefit of a rabbinic education. So he, he can help in a lot of ways, but he's not dictating something. He's not transmitting information that has somehow been spoken in his ear by God. He's using what he says is, you know, wisdom that God has given him. So God has enhanced him. He's given an ability to make wise choices as an, as an apostle. But this isn't some, these aren't dictates from God. This isn't a systematized theology or soteriology that God has given to Paul. Paul is largely looking back on scripture through a gospel lens, just like you and I do, he obviously had a powerful gift to do that. Mm-hmm. And hence our series, According to Scripture. That's right. the idea of this series right. we're in. Right. So as Paul is, um, as he's, as, and, and some of it, I think, has come out of the fires of debate. You know, he's in, he's not just saying, hey, everybody that wants to believe in Jesus, follow me, and we'll go off here and we'll develop our own, um, our own theology, our own um, ideas. A lot of this is is coming out of his invading the Jewish space with this message. You know, that's that's his platform is synagogue. Uh, at least that's where he starts. He hits town and he finds where Jews are gathering to discuss Torah. And he's like, open the book and let's talk about this thing. Uh, and he gets pushback. People have counterpoints, you know. They have real concerns to the point that they're ready to, you know, uh, attempt to execute him multiple times. Um, so he has to defend what he's saying. He's going all around the world. And, you know, I, Paul could have lived a, a, just a trouble-free life. He could have just gone on, and, you know, done his thing, raised a family and, you know, earned a living and retired in a, you know, in an old age and just minded his own business and everything would have been fine but he wasn't okay to do that jesus had called him to go and stir some stuff up (laughs) you know and he does and so I, i say this because when we're reading paul what we're reading is him in the midst of a debate even when he's just writing a letter by himself in a prison cell he is he is arguing his side of the debate and the debate the topic of the debate isn't who saves us or how are we saved? The topic of the debate is how can these Gentiles come in to the Abrahamic covenant? Mm-hmm. And yet, in Paul, you know, Paul sees in this, he says, uh, I have made you the father of many nations that, that that promise can't be fulfilled by people becoming Jewish proselytes. Otherwise, he won't be the father of many nations. He will still be the father of one. Mm-hmm. The right? Jewish nation. Right. Yeah. So he has to, Abraham has to, um, be the progenitor of this diverse, you know, this this panorama of, of human society and cultures that if this is going to be fulfilled. And, and Paul makes a big deal of this verb tense, not I will. I mean, he says I will. So he's speaking from Abraham's perspective. He says, you will become a father of many nations. But then he says, I have made you. Mm-hmm. Paul makes a big deal of that in Romans 4. He says, you know, God who um, calls into being things that are not, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and he speaks of things yet to come, right? So when Paul has said those, makes those phrases in Romans 4, you're thinking of God calling, you're thinking he's referring to a God calling into being the multitudes. Right. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, that, it, that God is speaking of a, of a point prior to this conversation in Genesis 17. And he's saying, before we had this conversation, Abraham, I have made you. Uh So from that, Paul is developing um, a doctrine of predestination, but it is not the Calvinistic, you know, 
Sarah and Bill and Bob are going to heaven and Joe and John and Jane are going to hell. Um, it is this decision that those who are of the faith of Abraham, and God surely knew who they would be, right? But, but that those people would be his offspring, spiritually speaking, and that God had decided that before this conversation, mm-hmm. before calling Abraham. And so that's a predestination, mm-hmm. okay? But I, I just want to, you know, um, take a bit of the, of the kind of mystery out of it and just, you know, Paul, this is a very pastoral concern because if, if the Gentiles are not included at this moment in Genesis 17, okay, then they're just a second string. They're plan B. You know, there's some dispensational theology that suggests that God's first plan was to do everything with the nation of Israel, Abraham's physical descendants, and that when that didn't work out, then God went to plan B, which is the church age. It's kind of a parenthesis. Um, and, and, you know, so it's a consolation prize, Jesus. Sorry, the Israel, you know, the Jews didn't accept you. You can have these Gentiles until such time as, you know, we issue in the millennium, and now we can go back to a Jewish milieu, mm-hmm. right? Paul's thinking, Paul's, not, Paul's, Paul's seeing it quite op- the opposite of that. Right. Paul's seeing that this was God's plan from the beginning. Right, right. Plan A. And Paul would say that that's why God insists that the child come through Sarah. Uh, if you remember the story of Scripture, so Sarah cooks up this plan, right, for Abraham to have a kid through her handmaiden. As So the handmaiden's tale, I think, is based largely on these kinds of events uh, that, that show on Hulu. Um, but, you know, and, and we have to feel for Hagar. Uh, that's a whole other conversation, and Scripture does feel for Hagar mm-hmm. that, that there is this affirmation of her, um, and there is a, there is a a reaction or a, a preparation in Hagar to realize that Jews are not the good guys and Egyptians are not the bad guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I want us to get that the idea that Scripture is not a tribal narrative to say or a racist narrative. Um, Later on, we're going to see the Egyptians enslave Israel. God acts. He sets Israel free in, in the Exodus, right? And uh, if we only had the Exodus, you would think, well, the Egyptians are bad and Jews mm-hmm. are good. Mm-hmm. But here's an Egyptian who is enslaved by Jews mm-hmm. and being used by them, you know, and mm-hmm. exploited by them. So we're prepared for the story about the Egyptians with this story about the progenitor of the Jewish race enslaving a, an Egyptian and exploiting her and using her. Um, and mistreating her, um, and that's important too. Mm-hmm. So that's an aside. But at any rate, God seems to want it to be through Sarah, and he wants it to be through Sarah because he laughs. <laughs>, <laughs>, <laughs> that this, that what Abraham, Abraham is being called to is a faith in a God who laughs at the what what perplexes us uh not that he does not you know have compassion but that these things um that cause us so much consternation in life uh are very small compared to what god is able to do and that you're referring to the passage he when you say he laughs yeah well he says you'll name him isaac and isaac means he laughs you know so abraham laughed when god said you're gonna have a son through Sarah, right? Uh-huh. Because, it, you know, it stretches credulity. Uh, Paul speaks of this foolishness of this message, you know. And, and sometimes I think, at least for me, I'm like, I'm almost embarrassed. I'm like, I'm saying stuff that does not sound very scientific right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but, but that's okay. Uh, it doesn't have to. Um, science is becoming weirder and weirder all the time. Uh, science is starting to sound a whole lot more like myth and fable as we learn more about the universe. So, you know, get over it. But yeah, uh, so in Genesis 21, 5 through 6, we kind of get the punchline, right? Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Yeah, yeah. And so um, there's this refrain throughout as, you know, God has been working with Abraham all this time, and then he says, you're going to have a son through Sarah. Again, you know, it's not just that this has never happened to anybody before, but it's personal, man. 
if if anybody's ever dealt with infertility, mm-hmm. there you have a you have a monthly disappointment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and so having gone through that, and then you know Sarah to go through menopause, and to just bury that dream, and then you know forty years later to tell him, well that dream's not dead. I've just been waiting for the right moment. I mean that's just just personally, scientifically, experientially, that it's such a stretch. And so God says, you know, why why are you struggling with this? Is anything too hard for the Lord? He says that a couple of times, that there's this lesson that Abraham needs to learn. You know, he needs to learn the answer to that question if he's going to be the father of a multitude. And this multitude... This multitude is related, you know, we are related to Abraham because we know the answer to that question as well. And, and that, I think, is the Abrahamic faith. That's not, you know, it's not just believing in this invisible guy in the sky. It's not just monotheism. I think that it is the answer to the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Mm-hmm. And to live with that confidence um, is important. But, you know, so God has this, he has this end game in mind. Um, First of all, so just dropping a peg here. God is going to make Abraham, or has made in his uh, diction there, his his syntax, he, he has made Abraham the father of many nations. And the vehicle through which he's going to do it is his supernatural power, his promise, coupled with faith that it that Sarah didn't have this this son because she was capable of bearing children right but through a call to correctly answer the question is anything too hard for the lord uh, and so we have this reminder that god he laughs he laughs uh, in the name Isaac means he laughs, that he laughs at the things that um, seem too much for us, right? That these are well within his ability to overcome. And, you know, he wants us to laugh with him. Mm-hmm. That there's this, you know, when, when Abraham laughs at first, it's it's somewhat incredulity mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, ironically you know Paul says not weakened in faith he believed in all this it's like have you read it though mm-hmm. you know <laughs> he does seem to struggle mm-hmm. he's like wouldn't it just be easier I already have a kid you know mm-hmm. wouldn't it just be easier if you just blessed him and but the end game wasn't just to have a nation that was you know genetically related to Abraham but to bring life from death and to have a nation that is made of nations, of people who understand that death, you know, that God laughs in the face of death. Uh, nothing's too hard for the Lord. And so that's the, that's how God is going to multiply Abraham. That's how he's going to make this, this enigma come true, that he could be the father of many nations. I mean, how, if, if you know, if you're biologically the father of, of a nation, then that's pretty much, I mean, if they remain cohesive, if, if they trace their roots to you, then they're just one nation. Mm -hmm. They have to be. Mm -hmm. How can he be made the father of many nations? (laughs) Right. Only through some other mechanism besides biological reproduction. And so that's what Paul expounds. Paul's saying, look, this was back in the first book you have as he's debating with the Jews and they're like, no, you have to be circumcised. You have to become a Jew to have a relationship with Abraham. And yet that became such a tribalistic um, and legalistic narrative. They're, 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 and their view was you have to become a Jew in order to have a relationship with the God of the Jews. Right. Because he's the God of the Jews. Right. And so you have to be a Jew to be his uh-huh. and for him to be your God. Right, yeah. Funny thing is, is that Paul points out that Abraham was ungodly when God called him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he says, he, you know, Abraham believed in the one who who calls the ungodly. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, these, these people are like, no, you know, you have to have this whole tradition with God in order to belong to God. And he's like, how did this all get started? Right. You know, did this begin with somebody who already believed in God or did God call an ungodly person, somebody who didn't have any formal worship, who had no copy of, a, of the scriptures, mm-hmm. who was a pagan, and then he proclaimed him righteous on the, on the basis of this one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Paul, Paul is really taking them back as, as in Romans, he does this, this kind of soteriology and, and how are the Gentiles included. He's like, they've always been included um, through Isaac. And how is it through Isaac? Because it is through God's choice and it is through God's power. And God has chosen to bring in the Gentiles from the beginning. You don't get to veto him based on your understanding of how this is supposed to work. And um, it's not because you're biologically related because anybody can pull that off. God insists on something more powerful. So God means to make, God means to make for himself though, uh, there's something more going on here. So Abraham, Abram means exalted father, right? Which is an ironic name for somebody who's been, who was childless for 75 years, right? So I think uh, Tira, Tira had dreams. Abraham's father? <laughs> yeah. 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 You've, you've born a son. Here's your firstborn son. I shall call him Exalted Father. <laughs> and it's like, well, well, okay, well, that's that's pretty presumptuous. You know, I mean, I don't even know what's going to happen with this kid yet. Right, right. And he basically was never a father until his old age. Right. And so here's this guy. He's carrying around this ironic name. Uh-huh. You know, childless dude. Carrying around this ironic name, Exalted Father. And, um, and yet God makes that true. Um, to some degree, I mean, I, I don't know if exalted father, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Even, you know, so he has Ishmael and, and does that make him an exalted father? Probably not. I mean, everybody, you know, uh, what, what is the, uh, old saying, you know, anybody can be a father and take somebody special be dead <laughs> or right. something like that. But you know, what, what makes Abraham or Abram an exalted father? I don't know. He, he's a, he's a big shot in his own way. He's yeah. he's amassed uh, possessions. He's been yeah. successful. He's exalted in that way. He is the father of only one child, though. At that yeah. point, yeah. Well, I don't know if he how much he accomplished as much as he just inherited or whatever. You uh-huh. know, he's kind of like the prodigal in that he, I guess, his dad died, and so he collected on the inheritance and okay. then moved away. So yeah, I mean, he, he's exalted in that he owns a lot of stuff. Um, but then God comes and, and changes his name, which, I, you know, I think if you were Abraham and you know, if I had exalted in my name, I probably wouldn't want to change it. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I've always thought, you know, like, so you get a doctorate and what are you, doctor? You get a master's degree, what are you? Nothing. Right, yeah. But you have <laughs> a nothing. master's degree, right? And no one calls like me master. Should, I feel like people should call you master. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but at any rate, you know, and if you're called master, why would you want to move on for a doctorate? Mm, no. Right, yeah. How do you get higher than master? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's this change of name from exalted father, which seems perfectly fine, right? Especially if you finally have a, a one kid, and then you maybe you have another one, and the second one is supernaturally born i mean hey now you really starting to step into this destiny okay yeah yeah wow it's finally there and then you know god changes it and he called you know uh, so there's father of a above multitude father of many abraham so and they sound even like similar words it's just adding a syllable in there but it almost it, it's at least just a lateral move mm-hmm. I mean, how do you go up from exalted father? And we talked about this, you know, you, you can't be promoted um, from founder. Um, you know, if you're, if you're the founder, then that's, nobody can take that job from you or whatever, right. you know, uh, unless you're Ray Kroc with McDonald's, I guess. But that's a whole other story. Uh, anyway, there's this, um, this position that a person has that you just can't go any higher. So why change their title? 
you know. Um, so God does. He changes it to father of a multitude, saying, I have made you the father of many nations, right? Um, why? Why does he do that? Well, I think God has something in mind. Just as Isaac means he laughs, right? And we would think, well, that refers to Abraham laughing when God says this. But that laughter is somewhat incredulous. And then, you know, God comes as the three visitors and he tells uh, Abraham again, you're going to have a son through Sarah. Now Sarah overhears that promise and she laughs, mm-hmm. right? Again, this is ironic laughter. This isn't a good Almost like a mocking laugh. laughter. Right, yeah, it's, it's somewhat derisive, right? And this kind of laughter, it's not, uh, it's not contagious, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, this kind of ironic laughter, it's, it's awkward, <laughs> you know. Um, but then God brings the punchline. Isaac is born. And now Sarah says that God has brought me laughter. As in joy. Right. And this is contagious. This is the this is the game of ha. I don't know if you ever played that, you know, where you say ha and then the person says ha ha. And you know, eventually everybody's laughing. You know, God's turning to these Bedouins and saying ha. <laughs> you know. And and so Sarah is is seeing in this fulfillment a, a contagion. You know, this this infectious joy that comes in having the right answer to that question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Mm-hmm. And so there's this this laughter that God God has been laughing. See, God doesn't have He hasn't laughed ironically. You know, He's been laughing all along, mm-hmm. uh, joyfully, triumphantly, and He invites us to join Him in that laughter. And so the He in He laughs is primarily God. Okay, and so when God once Isaac named, he laughs. He wants us to look to him. He wants us to see that he's the one who laughs, mm-hmm. right? As and, and in the same way, when God names Abram, Abraham, he wants us to see something about his, himself. He's not just saying something about Abraham. He's pointing away from Abraham to himself because for all those years, Abraham or Abram, you know, Abram is not an exalted father, but God is, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, so his name really applies to God. And so when God changes that name, really gives him this lateral move from Abram to Abraham, he's saying something about himself as well. And that's not readily apparent probably in the Old Testament narrative until Jesus comes along. And then, you know, Paul makes this case that that there's this this client-patron relationship. So by the time the gospel's being proclaimed, you're in the Roman Empire, you have this strong culture of patronage where grace is offered downward from a patron to a client who is at the lower strata, someone who's marginalized, disenfranchised, who has no voice, no power. And yet the patron reaches down to forge what's called friendship, mm-hmm. right? So the, the patron forms a relationship with the client and the client is then known by other people as the friend of so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Now the door is open for this guy, right? He's, he's made him a friend. Mm-hmm. Which just so happens to be what Abraham is called with relationship to God. Friend of God. Right. So Isaiah 41, he says, I've chosen you. I've, you know, I've made you. He speaks of Abraham. You know, he says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. Mm -hmm. Notice that that God is in this parent-child relationship with almost everybody, even though nobody really addresses God as father until Jesus comes along, that God is ultimately the progenitor of humankind. Okay. 
But when it comes to Abraham, Abraham is never referred to as God's child. That God has has kind of pulled Abraham up as, as his here is probably too strong a word, but but as his friend. So that he's somebody that he has formed a voluntary relationship with. I think that's what friendship is. Voluntary relationship. Okay. And God has formed this relationship with this person. And in the client-patron world, friend speaks of that relationship. So God has formed this this client patron relationship with this with a slave ultimately you know and in terms of strata abraham is nothing okay and yet god has chosen to form a relationship has cho- chosen to call him his friend um and in the in the greco-roman world especially as the gospel is being proclaimed and people hear about grace and faith they hear about you know abraham as the friend of god that, that the next step there, the way that you elevate, the way you finally elevate this person who was a slave, they were in this bottom strata, and in their life, they're never going to rise above that. Even though you formed this connection with them, they're still at that, at their same strata. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're still considered a, a slave. They don't, you know, they might have, they have a borrowed privilege from you, but they're still at that same level. But that's not, that's not quite enough, I don't think, for God, for his grace. He wants to pull Abraham all the way up to himself. And so it, at least as God is working, it seems to be working within the structures of human society, there was only one way to really accomplish that final level. Okay. And that was through adoption. That God can, can give... Abraham something that really that only belongs to God you know that he can make Abraham a participant in God's own wealth by an heir right so how does he do that right because because becoming an heir is everything you know it's nothing really matters if you don't have something to inherit then it all dies with you if you have nothing to hand on, it all dies with you. Um, and yet God wants to make Abraham. He wants him to participate. And this was this, these were laws that were in the Greco-Roman world. There were specific legal terms that if you were to adopt somebody, you can make them a full heir next to your children. So um, Augustus Caesar, you know, he, he adopts... Julius his heir was. Uh, no? Yeah, was it Julius that adopted? I, so. I, I can't remember. Anyway, one of them they adopt somebody, and that person becomes the next emperor, not uh-huh. his biological children. That uh-huh. there's this adoption made somebody a full child, uh-huh. right? Um, and so there, are, there's a couple of important Greek words that um, speak to this process. Okay, so here's a couple of Greek words. One is. Um, the prosthemia. The prosthemia is an appointment that you set. When you say, this kid, I'm so let's say I'm your servant, you're the nobleman, you want, you form this client uh, patron relationship with me. Okay. And then you say, but, but I'm really, I'm going to pour a grace on you in that I'm going to adopt your son as my own and he's going to inherit everything. I mean, can you imagine mm-hmm. what a massive, massive gift that is? Mm-hmm. Okay. But, you know, my son's a baby. I, I don't, you know, I want to raise him. I want him to be my kid, right. you know. So as long as, and you said, that's fine. You know, but but let's set a date so that when he reaches that age, he'll become my kid. You know, you, you'll, you'll, Legally. Hand him, you'll hand him over, right? Yeah. And he'll be under, you know, under me and he will be the noble that I am. Mm-hmm. That prosthemia is that date that's set. Okay. Okay. Um, and then the, that process so that day comes and you will call seven witnesses and you will give me this huge sum of money or a massive treasure to redeem my child out from being my son to being your son. Um, now I will, that's ceremonial. I want, because I'm our slave in your house, so whatever you give me still belongs to you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and 
generally there's just a you know that that transfer of, of wealth just comes right back to the the patron um, but anyway there's this major sum there's this precious treasure that's handed over um, to redeem out from under slavery and from under my sonship to become yours that's the huiothesia the making of a son the adoption to sonship there's not a good english word for it so uh, English English translations translated as adoption to sonship. Mm-hmm. Even that doesn't really mean it doesn't convey this idea of a full exaltation, a change of status to being completely an heir with the the noble, right? And so Paul uses all of that language mm-hmm. in Galatians, mm-hmm. right? He's saying, you know, when that when the time comes, when the time came, so. He's saying under the law, you know, you we lived as slaves. You want to read Galatians 3, 16 through 22, and we'll call it. Maybe we'll end on that note. But The promises but, were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but it says, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, capital S, seed, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised being given through the faith of Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Oh, can of worms. Okay, yeah, I changed that. The faith of Jesus Christ is not how the NIV renders that verse. So uh, Galatians 3.22, we're going to have to take up with that next time, aren't we? Nathan, you had me read this long passage, and you were saying that it really summed it all up. I lied. But it seemed to open a can of worms. Right, yeah, it has... It has opened a can of worms. Uh, yeah, so Jesus is the seed to come. So there's this promise made. And in Greek and Hebrew and English, the word seed is a collective noun. It could mean an individual or it can mean many. Um, and Paul makes this point that um, there's not a distinction made that it is, uh, that there's this intentional uh, collective noun that's used to, to seed. Um, and he would say that it refers to Christ um, and that when Christ has finally come, you know, so this this covenant was made with Christ, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and he, so he's speaking of there in, in Genesis 22, I think verse 18, where God, you know, he says, I, I'm going to make this promise to you through your offspring, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. So as Jesus through, you know, who is the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, one of his designations is present in that Genesis 22 story. God the Father is making this covenant with Abraham and with his offspring, one particular individual, according to Paul. uh, He's making this promise. And the promise is that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So... Um, there is this offspring that this covenant is made with, which is why Paul, and some people say, well, Paul didn't really have a fully blown Trinitarian theology because he seems to speak of Jesus as the son and doesn't really call him God as much or speak to him about him as God. He reserves the word God to speak of the father. And some people would say, well, God, Paul doesn't really have a Trinitarian theology. I would say that that's incorrect. And here's why I say that, because in Galatians 3.20, he says the law, Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, was given through a mediator, Moses. 
He's saying that that implies that there are two parties to that covenant, that there's God and there are humans, and that if the reason that the law cannot be the vehicle through which the promise is fulfilled is because it requires both parties to uphold their side, and we know that humans will not do their side, mm-hmm. right? We, so it nullifies it, right? And they didn't. Okay. But then he says, in in contrast to that covenant that had two parties, and we know it had two parties because there was a mediator, that there was another covenant that did not require a mediator, which means that there were not two parties, and God is one. Mm-hmm. Wait, with whom has God made the Abrahamic covenant? Abraham. And his offspring. And his seed. And he's saying that that covenant didn't need a mediator because there were not two parties. God is one. What does that say about the seed? The seed is God. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And so how how can the covenant fail? And there's not two parties because Abraham somehow doesn't count because all he offers is faith. Right. He doesn't have anything to offer but faith. Right. That's how there's not two parties but one. Right. Yeah. So he doesn't have, right. So God cuts covenant, you know, with the word for covenant really means to cut, which is why circumcision was a fitting way to represent the covenant because there's a, you know, a a cutting around. It's a, a, you know, it's a circumspect cutting, (laughs) you know, that when you cut a thing, um, you you do something final, something complete, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, the idea of covenant had to do with um, a, a permanent transaction or, you know, transition. And so uh, God makes this promise to Abram and he says, you're going to get this, all this land. And Abram says, well, how do I know that? Right. Where's my deed to this property? Mm-hmm. So God does the equivalent of giving Abram a deed to the property and to the promise in that he cuts these animals in half. Right. He has Abraham or Abram cut these animals in half, which was a common way to, to make this agreement. Right. And, and so the two sides of the animals are on either side of this walkway, this swale. And um, classically, usually if you and I were making a covenant, we would walk together between those saying, you know, if I break this, let what happened to them happen to me. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm, I'm agreeing to this because we're not a literate society. We don't you know, we don't have probably paper even available we have to make some sort of a solemn agreement mm-hmm. um, but in that in that story now if I were telling a story God would manifest in some way and he would take hold of Abraham or Abram at that point and walk him through that and so Abram would be bound to the covenant as was God or if I was really sophisticated in my soteriology, I would have God manifest and walk through by himself, saying, I'm binding myself to this, but you don't have the capacity to, to fulfill this covenant. And so I'm going to do it by myself. All you have to do is trust me. And Paul makes a point that that is the case, that God is responsible for the enacting of the covenant, but also for the the satisfaction of its requirements, mm-hmm. right? So there, there are there are things that are promised in a covenant. There are things that are promised, and then there are requirements that have to be fulfilled in order for those um, benefits to confer, mm-hmm. right? So you have a car, I have money, you know, mm-hmm. or I don't have money, but I'm going to pay you eventually. So we sign a contract. You know, if I make the payments, I get to keep the car. If I don't make the payments, I don't get to keep the car. The car is the resource. The payments are the promise or the the side, my side of this agreement, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Now, if God is owns everything and he's gracious and everything, he says, you know, you're going to have the car and I'm going to make the payments. So I'm, I'm selling you the car, but I'm also making the payments, right? This is ultimately giving him the car, right? Uh, and so, and Paul makes the point that all, all Abraham had to do was to trust that God was going to make the payments and he could drive the car. Uh, fine. But that's not what happens, right? That's a simplistic view of it. 
God manifests, but he manifests as two in Genesis 15. Was there a flaming torch or something, or a fire pot right. that passed there's a, between? There's a smoking pot, fire pot, okay. and a flaming torch. Okay, there's two. There's a flaming torch and a smoking pot. Fire pot. Fi- fire fire pot. pot. Right. So back then, if you were going to haul fire around, right, you didn't have a flip flame. You had to have some sort of a metal pot that you could put the fire in to carry it around, uh-huh. right? But this pot is going to be uh, opaque. It's going to be sealed because... Uh, you don't want to get too much oxygen in. You're not trying to burn up. So it's this isn't emitting light. It's just got fire in it. Right. A smoking pot. And then a flaming torch. It's emitting light. It, it, you have the fire for the purpose of light. Mm-hmm. We can unpack that, but we're not going to. At any rate, so God manifests in as two. Now, if you're strongly monotheistic and you don't want to confuse anybody, you want to make sure that everybody understands that you're just one. Your solo, solitary, individual person, do you show up as two? <laughs> right? But a covenant doesn't make sense making it by yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like one hand clapping or something. It mm-hmm. just doesn't uh, make sense. So it's not really, if God is one person, he can't make a covenant with himself. If God is more than one being, we have to count on that other being having the capacity and the goodwill to fulfill that side of the covenant. If God is multiple persons and one being, then we can be assured that this covenant will be fulfilled because it doesn't need a mediator. There's one heart, one mind going into this, that that both parties are equally invested, equally want to see it take place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what we see in that in that covenant which gives a ton of significance to Jesus' um, declaration um, on the cross when he says it is finished. I, he's not saying oh, my suffering is over. He's saying it is accomplished, that there's something, there was something left unaccomplished, that this, this faith, faith to the uttermost, was yet to be fulfilled uh, Abraham's faith. by this individual by the person with whom the agreement Uh was made. Uh And so Uh Paul says the agreement was made with the seed, and the seed is God. And so as God, the seed of Abraham, fulfills his side of the covenant, this this death-defying kind of faith. Faith that led him even to the point of death, to the cross. Right. Trusting that the Father would raise him up. Right, and so, you know, you get to Acts 2 and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and Paul says that, or not Paul, Peter, in in preaching that, he says, um, having been exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. When was this promise made? Well, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. I don't think God's saying they're going to be generally happier. (laughs) God has something very specific in mind, right? That all the nations of the world will be able to receive the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit becomes this, the defining trait, the characteristic of Abraham's children. Um, And so Peter, even as Peter offers, he says, you know, repent and be baptized, every one of you the remission of your sins, and you will receive um, the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Uh-huh. And so now there, the door is open, the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled, and the new uh, hallmark of Abraham's children is the Holy Spirit given in the name of Jesus, who has fulfilled his side of the covenant. And now, if you will, we get to drive the car. <laughs> you know, that, that this promise is made. Now, the Holy Spirit isn't all of it. Uh, he is the down payment on the full inheritance as um, we inherit the earth or creation co-heirs with Christ. So that's, that's, a, that's a big mouthful. That's a lot. Okay, now, and this is how, coming full circle, a- Abraham goes from exalted father to father of a multitude. It's through Christ, Christ's mm-hmm. fulfillment of the covenant. Right. And now it's Jews and Gentiles. It's it's the whole world right. who share 
the faith of Abraham, which really, as I see it, morphs into the faith of Jesus Christ. Right. Because they believe the gospel, Mm -hmm. Christ's faith dwells in them, and they live by that faith. Abraham pointed in that direction. Abraham's faith pointed in that direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is how your point was that God himself becomes the father of a multitude. Right. Yeah. How does God change when God is perfect? How does he get a, you know, God can't get a promotion. He's exalted father. If you believe, you know, traditional Christian theology that Jesus is the eternal son, um, that so God in his essence is exalted father. And, and how do you move up from there? Right. You can't, but you can have more kids. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and and so that this is the genius of, of history, of God's purpose, his intention. Everything until this moment has been to multiply this relationship, this father-son relationship mediated through the Holy Spirit. Father and son are, are bound together through the Holy Spirit. And now because of the faith of the son given through the proclamation of the gospel, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of sonship is awarded to us because this covenant has been fulfilled through the seed of Abraham. Can I get an amen? (laughs) (laughs) Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We're adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. Well, goodness gracious. Thanks, everyone, whoever you are, who stayed with us to the end. Yeah. And if you have questions about that, I'll bet you do. Why don't you email us, discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time.